Well, ladies and gentlemen, may I say what a pleasure it is to welcome you all here to the Open University and to Professor John Wolfe's inaugural lecture. And may I extend a particular welcome to members of his family who are with us here today. John Wolfe started his academic career at the University of Oxford by studying history, both at undergraduate and postgraduate level. His long-standing interest in religious history germinated at that time when his postgraduate research took him into areas that encompassed both history and, relig- and theology. From 1985 to 1990, he taught history at the University of York and joined the Open University as lecturer in religious studies in 1990. He was sub-dean of research and quality assurance for the Faculty of Arts from 1994 to 97 and head of the Department of Religious Studies from 98 to 2001. He's currently Associate Dean of Research and Postgraduate Studies in the faculty and was promoted to Professor of Religious History last year. I understand he was particularly pleased that this promotion finally made it possible to reflect the actual scope of his academic interests in his formal job title. Throughout his academic career, Professor Wolf has written widely on evangelicalism and the publication two years ago of his authoritative account of early 19th century evangelicalism, The Expansion of Evangelicalism, The Age of Wilberforce, Moore, Chalmers and Finney, signalled the culmination of 25 years of research. John has also recently published a critical evaluation of the Yorkshire returns of the 1851 religious census and is the author of a number of other books, including The Protestant Crusade in Great Britain, 1829-1869, God and Greater Britain, Religion and National Life in Britain and Ireland, 1845-1945, and Great Deaths, Grieving Religion and Nationhood in Victorian and Edwardian Britain. A testament to John's international standing in his field is evidenced in commissions to write the key articles in Wilbur, on Wilbur, Wilbur, William Wilberforce and the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography and his invited contributions to standard reference works such as the Cambridge Dictionary of Christianity, the Cambridge History of Christianity and the Encyclopedia of Death and Dying. He has also been a member of the commissioning panel for the AHRC ESRC Religion and Society Research Program since 2007 and has recently given invited papers on anti-Catholicism to both the Empires of Religion Conference in Dublin and the Anglo-American Conference of Historians in London. Reflecting the long-standing focus of his scholarly work at the interface of the dual disciplines of history and religious studies, The title of John's lecture this afternoon is Religion History. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome John Wolfe to the stage. John. Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor. Shortly after I joined the Open University in 1990, I was chatting to a taxi driver about my main current course production assignment, Religion in Britain from 1945. Well, he said, you'll be able to get that one on the back of a postage stamp. (laughs) To him, religion already seemed to be history, in the popular sense of the word, 
meaning now forgotten and irrelevant. There is indeed much evidence that might be used to support such a view. During the previous half-century, formal membership of the Church of England had declined from 3.4 million to 1.4 million, a mere 2.7% of the population. The Sunday school movement, which once provided basic Christian instruction to the great majority of children, had virtually collapsed. Architects were kept busy, as in this picture, uh, finding creative secular uses for redundant places of worship. The perception of an inexorable decline of religion into irrelevance was also widespread among historians and sociologists. For example, Alan Gilbert, in his book entitled The Making of Post-Christian Britain, published in 1980, concluded, unless there is to be some catastrophic breakdown of modern industrial society, the social and psychological pressures of modernization will continue to secularize an already post-Christian society. John Kent's survey of the writing of church history, published in 1987, ends with the words, the barbarians have arrived, twilight has descended, and this time when it lifts, the western churches will probably have ceased to function. Nevertheless, cross-currents were apparent. Here in Milton Keynes, the street plan of a late 20th century new town has been influenced by ideas and alignments supposedly derived from ancient nature religion, and a Buddhist peace pagoda is a central feature in a local park. Nor is Christianity forgotten. Village churches have been carefully preserved amidst new developments, and some of them have thriving congregations. The large purpose-built church of Christ for Cornerstone was constructed in the early 1990s and is a prominent feature of the town centre. Even at the end of the 20th century, a sense of religious presence still seems to be a perceived need in, in a new urban community. Other religious traditions are also making a prominent physical impact on British towns, most notably Islam, represented here with an image of the North Watford Mosque. It's also possible to argue that in the 1980s, the churches were among the most influential critics of the Thatcher government, with a moral impact disproportionate to their actual committed membership. For example, they rejected nationalistic triumphalism in the aftermath of the Falklands conflict of 1982 and endeavoured to preserve social cohesion in the inner cities. Then, in January 1989, Muslims in Bradford engaged in a carefully stage-managed burning of Salman Rushdie's recently published novel, the satanic verses. They had been provoked by allegedly blasphemous allusions to the Prophet Muhammad. The subsequent controversy saw Muslims vilified in the British media, while the ailing Iranian leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, issued a fatwa proclaiming Rushdie deserving of a death penalty. The Iranian government broke off diplomatic relations with Britain. The Rushdie affair was significant in two ways. It decisively raised public awareness that religion in contemporary Britain was no longer only Christianity and Judaism, and, and it exposed the shallowness of a secular liberal pluralism that perceived ethnic minorities in racial and cultural terms while discounting their religious beliefs. 
During the last decade and a half, there have been numerous indications that anticipations in the 1980s of the imminent demise of religion have been misplaced. The popular response to Princess Diana's death in 1997 showed a widespread diffuse spiritual interest and a resort to churches as focal points for popular mourning. The success of Alpha courses, instructing adults in basic Christian doctrine, did not reverse the overall numerical decline in church attendance, but they were indicative of a significant regrouping and consolidation by organised Christianity. And on the global stage, the new Christian right showed itself to be a major force in the United States. Christianity also gathered strength in the Southern Hemisphere and in East Asia, while resurgent Islam became a major factor in the turbulent politics of West Asia and North Africa. For scholars of religion, it is a bitter irony that the tragic events of 9-11 and 7-7 that have placed our subject of inquiry at the very centre of media and government interests are also ones that we really prefer to interpret as having little to do with mainstream religion. To blame Islam for the fanaticism of the suicide bombers may be analogous to blaming Christianity for the Nazi Holocaust, or to use a secular parallel, to holding motor manufacturers responsible for traffic accidents. In all cases, certain preconditions are established, but to argue that these necessarily, rather than contingently, lead to the particular outcomes in question is highly tendentious. Nevertheless, it is, of course, the terrorist attacks of September 2001 in the United States and July 2005 uh, in uh, in Britain uh, that have most emphatically reversed the perception that religion is history. Much to the satisfaction of our own scholarly community, they have led the AHRC and the ESRC to conclude that investigation of religion merits the investment of 11 million of public money in a major strategic research programme. It may therefore seem rather perverse and ungrateful of me to intend to argue in this lecture that religion is history. I do so, though, in a much more positive sense than in the colloquial sense of the phrase I have followed hitherto. First, though, I want to reflect just a bit more on the contemporary and confusion and doublethink regarding the tra- trajectory of religion in the contemporary world. The effect of 9-11 and 7-7 has been to change this from a debate primarily of academic and insider interest to one that is perceived to be a matter of major public concern and, moreover, one that opens up highly disturbing possibilities. In this respect, I think it has significant parallels with the recent foregrounding of public concern over climate change. Indeed, anxieties over religious change and over climate change may well show common patterns of thought and collective anxiety in ways we do not yet fully comprehend. Broadly speaking, as indicated on this slide, I would discern four views of the contemporary situation of religion. In this inevitably simplified model, I'm suggesting that there are two cross-cutting divides between those observers who judge religion to be declining and those who judge it to be resurgent, 
and between those who consciously promote such decline or resurgence. The distinction between the detached and committed approaches operates within academia quite as much as between academia and the wider world. Dawkins holds the chair of the University of Oxford. The church report from which the quote from Bishop Cray is taken is not mere whistling in the wind, but a solid piece of research grounded in recent scholarly literature. There are further subtleties. There are many within the churches who, unlike Cray, implicitly see themselves as managing decline rather than trying to reverse it. There are other atheists who, unlike Dawkins, implicitly regard the God delusion as so self-evidently false as not to require refutation. There is also confusion as to whether one is discussing Christianity in general, Christianity in particular, sorry, religion in general, or what in particular is the geographical field of reference. Thus, uh, Brown, uh, in his comment uh, on Britain, almost entirely ignores the presence of faiths other than Christianity in later 20th century Britain. Jenkins's sense of an expansive future for Christianity arises from his observation of the global south, whereas he sees the religious future of Europe as very possibly lying with Islam. Another level of complexity is introduced by debate over the definition of religion itself. A narrow institutional approach can lead to very different conclusions from a broad inclusivity that treats as religious a wide range of individualistic spiritualities and even certain kinds of intense ideological commitments. In Dover Beach, probably written in 1851, but not published until 1867, Matthew Arnold perceived a world in which the tide of faith had already retreated. The sea of faith was once too at the fall, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright garment furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. A century and a half later, we find ourselves in a situation where there is no consensus as to whether the tide is going in or out or on the turn, but with a consciousness that there are some vicious eddies and rip currents around. At the end of the poem, Arnold changes his metaphor with a rather chilling allusion to the ancient battle between the Athenians and the Syracusans at Epipoli in Sicily, described in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. This fight took place at night, with the soldiers unable to see what was going on. In the consequent chaos and confusion, there were unnecessary Athenian casualties, a classical parallel for what would nowadays be called a friendly fire incident. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Arnold's evocation may well be applied to characterise the present-day world. It is collectively confused and somewhat fearful about religious commitments and influences that it does not adequately understand. Actions intended to calm or neutralise religious difficulties have a disconcerting tendency to inflame them further. In responding to this situation, how can a historical perspective help us? 
I now use the word history in the more neutral sense of denoting accounts of past events and societies. If we pursue the perception that religion is history, in the sense of having a recorded past that is subject to academic investigation, how can that process facilitate better and more balanced understanding of its role in the contemporary world? In addressing this question, I shall move from the general to the specific in discussing three particular examples drawn from my own research. First, there is the question of religious prejudice and antagonism, a major contemporary concern, especially in relation to Islamophobia. My doctoral research and my first book were a study of anti-Catholicism in mid-19th century Britain. In the early 1980s, when I was working on a thesis, it often seemed hard to justify the contemporary relevance of the subject. But since 1989, the parallels with contemporary antagonism to Muslims have become striking. And I've tried to capture some of these on this slide. Roman Catholics were a small and semi-invisible minority in early 19th century Britain. Then, in 1829, Catholic emancipation gave them something close to civil equality. Migration from Ireland gathered momentum in the two following decades, and they became a much more numerous and conspicuous presence. Similarly, there was a small Muslim presence in Britain from at least the late 19th century onwards, but only in the 1960s, 70s and 80s did Muslims, now much more numerous, develop a visible public profile. A small minority of 19th century Catholics, like a small minority of early 21st century Muslims, were indeed dangerously alienated from the British state because of its long-standing repression of the political aspirations of their co-religionists in Ireland. And Catholics, like like Muslims, appeared to have divided loyalties because of their recognition of an extraterritorial spiritual tie to the papacy they also represented a genuine spiritual challenge. 19th century Catholic leaders dreamed of a reconversion of England. Contemporary Muslims also seek conversions from the majority community and aspire to develop an Islamic vision of society. In both cases, however, the extent of popular antagonism became grossly disproportionate to the objective threat. Victorian Protestants were apt to see a Jesuit conspirator in every inoffensive professing Catholic, just as some are likely to perceive every contemporary Muslim as at least a potential terrorist. Sexual undercurrents also run deep. Both groups were associated with practices seen as fundamentally unnatural by Western cultural Protestants, celibacy in the case of Catholics, and arranged marriage among Muslims. I could pursue the parallel in much more detail and depth, but recognition of its existence seems a significant contribution to present-day endeavours to promote better understanding of the Muslim community. In 1852, John McGregor, Secretary of the Protestant Alliance, envisaged a future in 1900 in which Britain would be controlled by 1134 district courts of inquisition. In 1865... James Wiley, 
articulated the views of many when he wrote that, quote, the civil liberty of the country is at this hour in very great peril, and that was uh, from uh, the perceived aggression of the papacy. A century and a half later, it is true that Catholicism is still perceived as somewhat distinctive, and the present Pope's authoritarian and conservative tendencies are regarded with concern in some quarters. Nevertheless, even the most forceful critics of Benedict XVI would surely take a much milder view of his potential influence. Contemporary recognition of the exaggerated and irrational nature of much Victorian antagonism to Catholicism should thus stimulate a caution towards similarly alarmist views of the future impact of Islam. I have in mind here not only popular and media antagonisms, but also the views of influential academic commentators, notably Samuel Huntington with his scenario of a clash of civilizations, and Niall Ferguson with his endorsement of a view that continuing Muslim influence could see Europe transformed into Eurabia during the course of this century. There is, though, one very significant contrast. 19th century anti-Catholicism was a multifaceted phenomenon, but its central driving force was Protestant religious conviction. Theological conviction derived originally from the 16th century Reformation held that Rome's doctrinal teachings and religious practices were fundamentally erroneous and spiritually corrupting. By contrast, contemporary Islamophobia and indeed residual anti-Catholicism evident, for example, in the current parliamentary controversy over the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Bill, is much more secular in its ethos. Huntington, Ferguson and others perceive a clash between Islam and Christianity, but they do so from a perspective of attachment to what Sir Winston Churchill called Christian civilization, rather than from the personal theological and faith commitments that inspired 19th century anti-Catholics. On the other hand, official Christian leaders have generally appeared to be seeking rapprochement rather than confrontation with Islam. In 1991, George Carey explicitly addressed other faiths in his enthronement sermon as Archbishop of Canterbury, saying, I trust I can listen to your story and respect your integrity, even though having listened I may still want to present to you as to all the claims of my Lord. Much more recently, in February this year, his successor, Rowan Williams, spoke positively of the possibility of allowing some kind of limited space for Sharia law in relation to Muslim communities in Britain, framing his argument by reference to the established accommodations already existing for other religious communities. For example, in allowing Christian medical professionals conscientiously to refuse to be involved in performing abortions. The widespread hostile reaction that greeted a scholarly and nuanced lecture in which the Archbishop had already anticipated and addressed most of the potential objections was very revealing of the force of contemporary secular prejudice against Islam. I return for a moment to Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. When the poem was originally published in 1867, uh, after the appearance of Darwin's Origin of a Species in 1859, 
and considerable controversies over liberal theology in the Church of England in the early 1860s. It could be read primarily as a commentary on the retreat of orthodox conservative Christian faith. But in 1851, when uh, Arnold almost certainly originally wrote the poem, the context had been very different. True, this was not only the year of the Great Exhibition, readily characterised by historians as symbolic of a rising sun of industrial and scientific modernity. But it was also the year in which many days of parliamentary time were devoted to debate on the Ecclesiastical Titles Act, a now entirely forgotten piece of legislation directed against the recently appointed Roman Catholic bishops. It was a high watermark of Victorian anti-Catholicism. I therefore think it very possible, although I, I, I can't verify this, but in being reminded of the ignorant armies at Epipoli, Arnold was actually thinking not so much of confused secularity, but of the internecine struggles of his Christian contemporaries. Thus, changing meanings and readings of Dover Beach are themselves indicative of significantly shifting perceptions of relationships between religious groups and between the religious and the secular. I shall return a bit later to explore a bit more the developing sense of confrontation, not only uh, between Christianity and Islam, but uh, uh, not so much, sorry, between Christianity and Islam as between the secular and the religious in general. In the meantime, though, as my second example of a value of an informed understanding of the history of religion, I remain in 1851 to reflect on the census of religious worship also conducted in that year. And the slide gives you an example of, uh, of what one of the original returns for that uh, document looks like. It was a survey, unique until very recent times, of every identified place of worship in Britain and of attendances on the 30th of March, 1851. There are numerous limitations in the data and problems uh, with its interpretation you're, uh, uh, those who can read the remarks on the uh, bottom of this form uh, will see that it says that congregations uh, vary uh, a lot and that uh, one day's uh, returns may not be uh, representative. That's uh, just uh, one example of the interpretive problems uh, scholars struggle with. But it's still an invaluable document, especially as the great majority of the original returns for England and Wales still survive in the National Archives. I here give illustrative examples of one standard statistic derived from the census, the index of attendance, showing total attendances as a proportion of population. Double counting of people who went to church more than once meant that this figure could exceed 100%. To some extent, the census data confirms conventional assumptions about the negative effect of industrialisation and urbanisation on religious observance. Here in Milton Keynes, it will be of interest to note that we are located on the border between what were then two of the most religiously observant counties in England, Bedfordshire and Buckinghamshire. This was then a predominantly very rural and agricultural area, whereas 40 miles to the south, in already highly urbanised Middlesex, there was much lower church attendance. But the figures for Herefordshire and the West Riding of Yorkshire should immediately serve to check simplistic generalisation. 
crude urban-rural industrial-agricultural modern pre-modern distinctions give us little help, I think, in explaining why attendance was dramatically lower in Herefordshire than in Bedfordshire, and even somewhat lower in Herefordshire than in uh, industrialised Yorkshire. The closer one looks at the census, and here I'm looking at the uh, right-hand column, the more complex and variegated the picture appears. Mappings of patterns of attendance and their denominational distribution at registration district or parish level tend to look like patchwork quilts with no straightforward socio-economic explanations for the significant differences between nearby localities. Why, for example, uh, in North Yorkshire was attendance in the Beedale registration district at the top of the right-hand column more than 20% higher than in a seemingly very similar North Hallerton district immediately to the east at the bottom of the column? Why were there significant variations in attendance between the different towns and districts in the densely populated West Riding textile conurbation? The answers to such questions require study of the detailed contingencies of previous local history and events, geographies and personalities. When we bring other documentary evidence into the picture, it becomes apparent that not only did the snapshot of this particular Sunday reveal very different pictures in different particular localities, but that medium-term trajectories were also very different. Congregations were growing in one village while they were stagnant or declining in another nearby similar settlement. The importance of studying organised religion in its local context may seem obvious once the point is made, but it is too often forgotten in more general assessments. Historical legacies can be very long-standing, for example, in the physical sighting and layout of places of worship. They continue to exercise a significant influence on present-day religious behaviour. At the same time, awareness of complex local variation in the past alerts the observer to look out for it in the present, where indeed numerous instances of successful growing churches can be obscured by overall statistics of Christian decline. My third example, drawing on my own research, uh, is concerned with the interface between religion and national identity in Britain, which I explored in uh, in two books, which the Vice-Chancellor mentioned in introducing me. In both these books, I I traced in different ways a process in which, in Britain, national consciousness and, indeed, more strident forms of imperialist and nationalist self-assertion tended in the 19th and early 20th centuries to grow out of Christianity rather than to be in conflict with it. The monarchy gave particular focus to that linkage of the secular and the sacred. Its role is symbolised by this image on the left of the Duke of Clarence, Queen Victoria's grandson, who died in 1892 at the age of 28, cast as a rather unlikely St George in the stained glass window of a village church in the Vale of York. This connection between religion and monarchy was particularly apparent at events such as the Darman Jubilee and death of Queen Victoria and the interment of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey in 1920, at which George V was chief mourner. It still appeared plausible at the time of a coronation of 1953 
described in a serious academic journal as a great act of national communion. Since the 1960s, however, declining conventional Christian observance has been paralleled by a decline in popular enthusiasm for the monarchy. These processes seem to me to be interlinked and to have a common root in a weakening sense of collective overall British identity. Linda Colley and others have argued that the British nation was originally forged together in the 18th century by Protestantism, the monarchy, and a consciousness of a role as a great power. On the other hand, in the later 20th century, Indian independence in 1947 and the dismantling of most of the remainder of Britain's overseas empire in the 1960s left a more introverted and insecure nation at home, and it was followed by the growth of much more secular nationalist movements in Scotland and Wales. Even in Northern Ireland, church influences appear to have receded somewhat in recent years. And in fact, the photograph of a uh, redundant church I took was in Belfast the other week. This is despite the sectarian Christian roots of the Troubles and the Christian symbolism of their eventual resolution in the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. This historical perspective is very relevant to contemporary concerns over citizenship and Britishness. If my analysis is correct, then the endeavour to reinvent Britain is a challenging undertaking in a society where religious commitments are pluralist rather than exclusively Christian and where secular forces are increasingly strong. There are two discernible approaches. First, there is inclusive religion, as symbolised, for example, by the prominent seating of representatives of non-Christian faiths at the Golden Jubilee service in 2002. Secondly, there is an essentially secular strategy that consigns religious faith and activity to the private sphere and seeks public consensus in non-religious language and ritual. Organised religion is itself divided, depending on whether more sectarian or more universalistic impulses predominate. So we return to my earlier point that the most historically distinctive feature of Britain in our own time is not so much the decline of religion per se, but a sense of heightened tension and sometimes confrontation between the religious and the secular. The traditional middle ground of nominal Anglicanism and cultural nonconformity has been steadily eroded. It leaves, on the one hand, a highly diverse minority of committed believers, and on the other, a probably somewhat larger minority with firmly secular outlooks. The middle ground remains, but it is more contested and variegated uh, than it was. The conclusion that the historical trend is to the clearer polarisation of the religious and the secular helps to make sense of the rather contradictory impressions with which I began this lecture. Organised religion, or at least organised Christianity, may still be in statistical decline, but the context stimulates a greater assertiveness by both religious and secular camps, and this paradoxically makes religion more visible. It's also conceivable that uh, such attention will stimulate a degree of Christian revival. A sense of mild persecution may well prove more galvanising for the churches 
of the consciousness of complacent but limited acceptance that characterised their situation in Britain for much of the 20th century. Comparative history, indeed, suggests alternative possibilities. Unlike Britain, both France and the United States have had long-standing traditions of a formerly secular public sphere, but whereas in France, organised Christianity has declined even more precipitately than in this country, in the United States, church attendances have continued at a much higher level. In the final part of this lecture, I want to examine the question of whether religion is history in a third sense of of the word history, the usage that denotes an academic discipline. For a significant proportion of professional historians, religion has been outside their frame of reference or very marginal to it. For example, A.J.P. Taylor only found religion worthy of three out of 700 pages in his account of English history between 1914 and 1945, the definitive study when it was published in 1965. I recall in the early 1980s a fellow research student asking me with exaggerated and patronising politeness how my researches on what he called church history were going, in a manner that made it clear that he thought this was an anorak pursuit rating only somewhat above train spotting on the scale of human intellectual endeavour. I think my late father, the medieval historian Bertram Wolfe, worried that my choice of research topic risked leading me into a professional cul-de-sac. I would like, though, to think that he would have been delighted to have been proved wrong by seeing me give this inaugural lecture on what would have been his 86th birthday. There were two key reasons for this disregard of religion by mainstream historians. First, there was a prima facie assumption but its wider influence was negligible, at least in the post-Enlightenment era. Second, there was an implicit perception that those who studied it risked themselves transgressing the objective rational standards of academic inquiry. The latter perception was to an extent understandable in view of the tendency of traditional church history to slide into hagiography or institutional and theological apologetics. Indeed, down to at least the mid-19th century, history could still be presented by churchmen in explicitly theological and providential terms. For example, Hollis Reed, a former missionary, in a book entitled The Hand of God in History, first published in Hartford, Connecticut in 1849, asserted that history, when rightly written, is but a record of providence. Every change, every revolution in human affairs is, in the mind of God, a movement towards the consummation of the great work of redemption. In his ensuing survey of world history, Reed saw events such as the advance of the English language, the fall of Granada, the discovery of America, and the Reformation, as all having a providential purpose. By the mid-20th century, though, academic church history was fully subject to the same rigorous standards as other forms of history. The maturing and modernising of the subdiscipline was symbolised and promoted by the foundation of the Ecclesiastical History Society in the early 1960s. And while committed Christians might continue to see an underlying providential purpose and meaning in history, those who claimed academic respectability 
were careful to acknowledge that this theological perspective did not cause them to discount human and material interpretations of historical developments. Thus, Herbert Butterfield, the leading exponent of a Christian approach to history in the two decades after the Second World War, wrote in 1949, I must confess that if in the ordinary course of teaching I were to ask for what I should carefully call the historical explanation of a victory of Christianity in the ancient Roman Empire, I should assume that there could be no doubt concerning the realm in which the problem was to be considered. No doubt that I had in mind the question how Christianity succeeded and not the more fundamental question why. As a technical historian, that is to say, I should not be satisfied with the answer that Christianity triumphed merely because it was true and right or merely because God decreed its victory. Since the 1960s, church history has substantially broadened its scope, moving outwards from the study of theological ideas and religious institutions to engage in much wider-ranging assessment of religious influences in society, culture and politics. The pioneers in this respect have tended to be medievalists and early modernists, for whom the historical centrality of religion is hard to question. However, leading researchers such as Hugh MacLeod, David Hempton and Callum Brown have pursued similar approaches in relation to the 19th and 20th centuries. The parallel development of religious studies as a discipline distinct from theology has also served to facilitate this process by stimulating scholars to analyse forms of religion other than the narrowly institutional and encouraging a historical engagement with major religious traditions other than Christianity. These trends have led me to come to prefer the phrase religious history rather than church history to characterise my own sphere of study. There does, though, remain a degree of disjuncture between secular and religious history and a cross-cutting tension between approaches to both founded in Christian commitment and those that reflect an essentially secular outlook. Certainly my own long-standing experience as both a member of the Open University Religious Studies Department and of the Christianity and History Forum has been sometimes that of moving in worlds that seem disconnected from each other. I hope, though, that a capacity sometimes to see both sides of an argument is a desirable quality in a new professor. Furthermore, I increasingly see potential for further convergence without sacrifice of integrity, or at least for tensions to operate in constructive rather than negative fashions. In conclusion, I venture to suggest three attitudes that, if cultivated, would facilitate this process. First, it is important to acknowledge the limitations of one's own perspective and to allow space for others. Those with a primarily secular view of history need to recognise the well-nigh universal operation of religious factors in human history. Indeed, even if they themselves dismiss as absurd the kind of providential view of history set out by Hollis Reed, they still need to take into account the fact that such perceptions, or their counterparts, were widespread before the 20th century. The secular tendency to write religion out of the historical process has, though, its counterpart in the incipient tendency of some religious history to imply that religion explains everything. For example, those, myself included, who've argued during the last 20 years or so that the importance of religion in Victorian politics was underestimated by earlier scholars 
have to be careful not to appear to suggest that nothing else mattered. Victorian politicians, even those of conspicuous personal piety like W.E. Gladstone, were of course wrestling with a host of other concerns. It may be legitimate for religious historians to argue that religion was indeed an underrated factor in relation to, say, the formation of foreign or economic policy. But a rounding appraisal of its significance alongside other influences in these spheres of activity requires a different kind of historical perspective from scholars with expertise in this particular field. Personal Christian commitment may legitimately translate itself into a distinctive choice of subject matter and research questions. It may also usefully lead to a capacity readily to understand the mindset and spiritual dynamics of past religious movements that seem impenetrable to the non-believer. There is, though, a corresponding danger of writing back present-day religious convictions and attitudes onto superficially similar groups in the past. Above all, there needs to be a caution about moving from historical conclusions that are verifiable on the basis of the evidence to theological claims that are either entirely non-verifiable or can only be sustained within the framework of a very different discipline. Tom Wright, one of the leading conservative Christian theologians of our day, puts it this way in the context of his discussion of Christian origins, coming from his own perspective as a theologian. History is vital, but of itself it is not enough. Uh, For the most a historian as historian can do is to draw attention to the beliefs of those being studied. And this is what David Hempton does in the discussion of the motivation of early Irish Methodists, as I've quoted on the screen. More secular scholars might reasonably emphasise alternative material explanations to Hempton, but for them to assert explicitly that Methodists were diluted in their own reading of events would go beyond legitimate historical discourse quite as much as Hempton would have done had he explicitly claimed that they were correct rather than pointing out their particular views. A second essential attitude is a readiness to engage with non-Christian religions and indeed with non-European Christianity. Such a process should immediately stimulate awareness not only that the paradigm of religious decline in the 20th century is a distinctively European one rather than a universal global one, but also that the very polarity of the secular and religious either operates in different ways or does not really exist at all. The very numerical strength of organised Christianity in the United States or in sub-Saharan Africa implies a different kind of relationship to the surrounding secular culture and society from that operative in Western Europe. The American religious historian John Butler has recently observed, without rethinking modernity, especially the assumption of secularity, our histories cannot explain or even adequately describe the remarkable resilience of religion in so seemingly secular a place as Manhattan. And when one turns to majority Muslim, Buddhist or Hindu societies, Underlying religious and cultural values imply the integration of the secular and the sacred much more than their separation. The Canadian Christian scholar C.T. McIntyre has speculated on what our current intellectual outlook would be 
given the ascendancy of a different framework of values. If Armelia had been India and Hindu Dharma, or perhaps Islamic Din, or Chinese Tao, or any of the other Christianities, he means non-Western Orthodox Christianities, the most likely difference would be the absence of a plethora of dichotomies themselves. My third and final recommendation for religious history is that there should be a positive embracing of the knowledge exchange agenda. The leading religious historian, John Bossie, has pithily remarked that historians, quote, had better be content to decline the role of saviours of the nation. But there's a converse false modesty and academic isolationism in perceiving our insights as having no relevance or usefulness in the present day. I am myself currently seeking AHRC funding for both a knowledge transfer partnership with the Anglican Diocese of London, intended to enhance current understanding of past patterns of religious activity in the capital, and also a collaborative studentship with uh, an organisation called Christian Education to explore the contemporary implications of the later 20th century collapse of Sunday schools. I regard projects of this kind as potentially highly significant both in correcting a tendency sometimes dangerously to sometimes dangerously unhistorical thinking in contemporary religious organisations, and also in stimulating historians to develop future research agendas that can genuinely inform contemporary thinking. Moreover, in bridging past and present, they also serve to bridge the religious and the secular. To conclude... I have argued on the basis of my historical perspectives that the best way of understanding the situation of religion in our our own day is to think not so much about the decline of religion but of a sharpened polarisation on the ground between the religious and the secular. That polarisation brings with it numerous possibilities, some of them alarming, others much more constructive. At the same time, developments in academia in general and in religious history in particular, offer a growing opportunity for a positive dialogue between religious and secular perspectives. Thus, there is a significant potential role for history in facilitating a realistic response to contemporary religious challenges. So yes, religion is history, but like history itself, it is certainly not dead and buried, but very much alive and kicking. Well, thank you, John, for that very insightful and stimulating lecture. John um, very kindly let me have a copy of it, or a draft anyway, um, recently, uh, but I enjoyed it all the more second time round, so thank you. About 15 years ago, I was involved in the performance of a Mozart piano concerto on a reconstruction of Mozart's pedal piano. And the performance was directed by a mathematician-turned-musician called Richard Maunder, who had actually made the piano himself, Uh, and who had taken a fresh look at many other performance elements of the works. The result was that he managed to challenge modern perceptions of the concerto uh, and cast it in an entirely new light. Uh, The performance was duly reviewed in the Times two days later, and the review began with the words, there need to be more people like Richard Maunder, 
And as I read the draft of John's um, lecture today, uh, those words came to my mind, except I have to adapt them and say that there need to be more people like John Wolfe. Uh, what it seems to me John has done is to take issues that have been publicly and frequently rehearsed in recent times uh, and given them a much needed wider context and fresh perspective. I've worked with John in the arts faculty for several years. In fact, uh, he joined the Open University around about the same time as I did, uh, a fact that I've only just realized this afternoon. Um, and I've learned to sit up and take notice when he has something to say. Uh, in my experience, it's usually quite important. And that's why I say we need more people like John, because we urgently need the kind of cool and clear analysis of the kind of issues that John has raised this afternoon. For example, we need not only to be able to make a reasoned assessment of our relations with the Muslim community in the wake of 9-11 and 7-7, but more widely, we need to be able to make sound judgments about the way in which our society will operate in the future especially in the light of the cross-currents of religious extremism, uh, extremism secularization, and uh, many of the other factors that John referred to. We need the kind of historically informed analysis of the past and the insights into the present that John has given us. So arts and humanities research is characterized sometimes as belonging uh, in an ivory tower, but I think John has amply demonstrated this afternoon um, that it can have very, very strong contemporary relevance. And it's perhaps no surprise to note that John has become one of the most vocal champions of knowledge transfer or knowledge exchange in the arts faculty, uh, as he just referred to a few minutes ago. John's lecture exhibits many of the reasons why he has been and is so highly valued in the faculty, I think, as a, particularly as a former head of department and also as a past and present associate dean for research. I've already referred to the clarity and thought that John brings to his work, uh, it's a quality that I and others greatly value across a wide spectrum of debates and discussions. And I would emphasize the word wide because John's thinking does range over a wide uh, area. And I think that's particularly uh, emphasized in what I perceive to be the increasing interdisciplinarity of his research. I should also mention John's sound judgment and integrity, which I think also have been demonstrated in this lecture this afternoon. John is not one to tell you what you always want to hear, um, but when he does have something challenging, challenging to say, it is always measured and always kindly expressed. John is also very persuasive. Uh, before I became Dean of the Faculty, I occupied the post that John now occupies, Associate Dean for Research. And I can remember well how persuasive he was in getting money out of me um, for his work on religious census. And I'm extremely glad to hear this afternoon that it was money well spent. <clears throat> So just to conclude, for many reasons, I think, there need to be more people like John Wolfe. Um, but wherever the clones may or may not live, I'm extremely glad that we've got the genuine article here with us at the Open University. Uh, his chair in religious history is clearly very richly deserved, and I'm sure you'd like to join me once again in expressing our appreciation for his lecture this afternoon. Thank you, John. <clears throat> Just one last thing to say, which is that I hope you'll all be able to join us for a drink downstairs um, straight away. <clears throat>